In your Bibles, go ahead and, and flip on over to James chapter 2. We're going we're gonna to wrap up uh, James chapter 2 uh, today in our, se- our study, in our series on the book of James. Uh, and then we're going to transition on Easter and we're going to talk about uh, the greatest betrayal uh, in the history of the world, the betrayal of God and how that plays out uh, for our celebration of the resurrection. James 2, we're going to start reading in verse number <coughs> 19. James 2, 19. We've already stood, so I'll have you remain seated for this, but James 2, 19 is what we're going to look at. It says, you believe that God is one and you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called, he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. On this Good Friday, we're going to wrap up James chapter 2 and looking at that. Our conversation from last week on Sunday, for those of you who were able to be with us, uh, proved to be an important one. Uh, The main point was that the true, genuine, saving faith (coughs) requires works as a proof that what a Christian professes to believe about Jesus is actually true, and they're willing to bank their life on that in trust. In other words, you have to put your actions where your mouth is. So just some key thoughts from last Sunday to kind of catch us up to speed as we go verse by verse through the Bible. Oftentimes, one verse will compound upon the thoughts of another. It's called context. And so to help us launch from a good, stable place, here's our key thoughts. An intellectual understanding and acknowledgement of the gospel of Jesus and even the conviction that it's true is not enough to save a person. The person must place their life in the hands of God in an act of, as an act of faith or trust that what God says is actually something that I can bank my life on. Salvation happens by grace only through faith alone to the glory of God alone, and it will always produce visible, tangible good works. We discussed one of the things that produces a false faith in people is an empty confession. A person that speaks well about Christ does not necessarily mean that they have saving faith, but they have a a life that demonstrates that what they say with their mouth is actually legitimate and true for themselves. Signing up to be a Christian is entering into an agreement of extreme and complete self-denial so that the Lord rules and reigns over every area of a person's life and heart. Now, why is this important? Why would we talk about this on Good Friday? Why would we talk about this particular topic on the day when Jesus, when we remember and reflect on what Jesus did for us on the cross? Well, here's why it's important. Jesus didn't just die on the cross for us to believe that it happened and for us to make it a holiday. He did it to buy back for himself those who he calls by his name. 
He did it to pay for the sins of all to the glory of his name. He did it to show his immeasurable and immense goodness and mercy. He did it to absorb the wrath of God for all for those sins so that we could be reconciled to the Father. It's so much more important than this intellectually accepting that this event of the crucifixion happened. It becomes a way that we live our life. All of these things that Jesus did aren't fully realized unless we respond to them in faith. That's trust. Trusting him with your life. Good Friday and Easter is not just about remembering the story, though that's not a bad thing, but this remembering of the story should cause us to reflect on our own lives, to evaluate and ask the question, am I truly submitted to the headship of Christ in faith as is the required response when the grace of God has been shown to us? The cross is the most magnificent display of grace and love that the world has ever seen, and there will never be another like it. It would be a shame if it wasn't fully realized by every person in this room. And that's why we talk about how to do that fully in faith. In other words, the story only matters to you personally in the deepest of ways if it becomes the reason you live. And the reason why you live the way you live. So let's look at the text again. James 2, 18 through 20. <coughs> I'm going to back up one verse too for context. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? What he's saying here, in effect, is if you claim to have faith in Jesus and that nothing else is necessary... In, re- in your response, that your faith can stand by itself. The truth is, you cannot show me true, genuine faith without the result of true, genuine works that happen as a result of that. There has to be clear, practical evidence that what you say is true actually is true. You must be able to demonstrate this faith if it is what you say it is. The only certain proof that someone's faith is genuine and saving is it is displayed in the way that someone lives their life. Turn your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6. Same gospel that we just came out of when we read the story of the crucifixion. Luke chapter 6. We're going to go to verse 46. <coughs> Luke 6, 46. I want to read through to verse number 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he was like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of the house was great. Let's also look at 1 John chapter 2. You're going to have to go to the end here just before Revelation. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 11. <clears throat> Whoever says, I know him, speaking of Jesus, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him 
ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, James goes on in the text here today, and and he points out one of the most significant and powerful examples. He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Even the demons, the vile servants of Satan, who spend their ever-living waking hours tormenting you, tempting you, wishing to bring upon harm and death, even they believe in Jesus. Even they have an intellectual belief and understanding that Jesus exists and that he's Lord. They believe Jesus is Lord. They just don't like it. And because they don't like it, they don't want to follow him, and they don't want you to follow him. They know the cross happened. They have an intellectual understanding. They know that the cross happened, but they they want to deny its effectiveness for us. They want to keep us content, going to church and acknowledging its existence, but denying its full power of transformation for a changed heart and life. They know Jesus rose from the dead. They saw it. They were there. But they like to distract us away from the reality that to live with Christ forever, we must also die with him in order that we may also share in his resurrection being raised to life. They don't want us to know that. So really, the, the, the question that James is proposing here is, what's the difference between someone who believes in God and demons? Nothing. Unless that person's profession has manifested into a new birth given to them by the Holy Spirit that proves itself in good works. That's the difference. The word for shudder in here in 19 is frorizo. It means to tremble with great fear. Even the demons know about God and are terrified of him. Terrified. That's not enough to save them. Because Satan is their king, not God, not Jehovah. They didn't trust in Christ, they trusted in themselves. We go down here to in verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? That word useless, the, the, the connotation here is something that doesn't produce. Example, let's say you're a boss, you're a foreman, <coughs> you're a manager, you're an owner. You hire a new employee. Welcome to 2023. He's late, didn't bring the right tools, took an extra lunch break, took an extra break, messed up so many things on the job that it might have been better if he wasn't even there. Sound familiar, 2023? Okay, that's useless. We could have just done this job with less manpower without having to deal with all of the drama, without having to deal with all the immaturity. That's the situation we have. That's the connotation. That's the idea. So if your faith does not produce works, it is completely and entirely useless. Then the scripture goes on to give us two great examples to wrap up chapter number two. Abraham 
and Rahab. Abraham and Rahab. Two individuals that are not perfect. Not perfect, but two very different individuals. So let's look at James 2, 21 through 24. Let's read the account of Abraham as the proof of genuine saving faith. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Bank that. Okay, because you might look at that, you Bible scholars would be like, whoa, 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 I thought we were justified by faith alone. I'll explain that here in a second. When he has offered up his son Isaac on the altar, you see that faith was active along with his work, works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, this is verses caused quite a little bit of a quandary. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer, this, great, this verse was a stumbling block for him. There was a lot of people who has been tripped up by this, this verse. And so what we have to do is we have to do a little bit of digging. The Greek word for this phrase, justified by works, is dikeo, dikeu, dikeu. There we go. I said it right that time. Dikeu. I even practiced that. Gee, many Christmas. Dikeu, okay? There are two possible meanings for dikeu. One is acquittal. That means you stand before the judge and you are acquitted of your crime. You are released of any responsibility for judgment for it. The second meaning is vindication or proof of righteousness. This is key. The sense is, is that it is a proof to men that what you say is true about your faith is actually true. Every place where dikeo is used in the New Testament, most cases, is a vindication or a proof of righteousness to men, not to God because God already knows what's in your heart. Romans 3, 4, by no means let God be true through everyone Though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified, dukeu, in your words, and prevail when you are judged. So we know that we're not justified before God made righteous because of the words we say. However, by the words you say, you vindicate the reality of your faith to men and saying, see, my faith is real because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So that's what it means when it says you're justified in your words. Your words prove what is in your heart and your heart's uh, proves that genuine faith because it has been transformed and changed. Dukeu. We also see 1 Timothy 3.16, great, inde- great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated, dukeu, by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in the glory. With this known, we can see that in the, the context here is that Abraham's sacrificial and extreme act of obedience was proof of his faith to men. But God already knew what was in his heart, Genesis 15, 6, and he believed the Lord and it was counted on him as righteousness. That happened before this. So when it says justified by works, that doesn't mean you're justified by works before God, but you're justified to man that your faith is genuine by your works. Dukeu, it's vindicated. But to God, he had already been made right. So Abraham was already received by grace through faith, but his act of bringing Isaac to the altar was a justification or proof that what he claimed that he believed about God was actually true. He put his actions where his mouth was. And he showed the entire world that his faith, 
that the father of faith was not a fraud, he was not a fake, but he was true to Jesus Christ and to God the Father by doing what he did. And we have to see in this story, if you're aware of it, for those of you who have looked at the story of Abraham bringing Isaac as a sacrifice after God asked him to, you have to understand that it wasn't just that he was willing to sacrifice his son, which is big enough of a sacrifice and a commitment in itself, but it was also that that Abraham was promised that he would be the father of many nations and that those nations would come through Isaac. He's literally laying on the altar the very promise of God for his entire life. He's he's laying everything on the line. That's faith. Here's the thing. Here's what Abraham knew. Abraham knew God would not cancel his word. Abraham knew that God would not go back on his word. Abraham knew God would be faithful. So even if he were to kill his son Isaac in this moment, somehow, some way, he would resurrect him or he would stop it or something would happen and what God said was going to happen was going to happen regardless of how sticky the situation looked. And so he was going to follow through no matter the fact of whether it made sense or not. Because God asks us to do things all the time that doesn't make a lick of sense. But when you have genuine faith, you do it anyway, because you know he'll never go back on his word. He's not a liar. He will not be mocked. So Abraham put him out there. What happened? He went to kill his son. God stopped him. Now, why did he do this? Is God playing some sick game with Abraham? No. He is foreshadowing what he would do someday to his own son on the cross. But this time he wouldn't stop it. He would go through with it for the redemption of all of us. It was a foreshadow. It was painting a picture, as is the whole Old Testament. The whole Old Testament is all pointing to Jesus Christ. It's all, it, all the language, all the figures. It's all pointing to the arrival of Jesus Christ. The whole book points at him. And so he gives us an example. He saves Isaac, he fulfills his promise, and he credits onto Abraham as a man of great faith. The key here is someone with real faith will always prove that real faith before men. You can say that you serve Christ all you want, but other people really know if that's true or not. Is your faith vindicated? We live in the show me state. Show me. You say you've given your life to Jesus. Show me. Not through religious rituals and actions, but through your faithfulness, through your commitment to the gospel, through the righteous actions of which you credit God and not yourself. The second example is Rahab. Rahab is a much different person than Abraham. Abraham, though he was, you know, he, he had some issues, that whole issue where he convinced his wife to sleep with the handmaiden to, so that they could start the lineage with Ishmael. That was a bad deal. Okay, so Abraham was by far not perfect. But Rahab, she made a career out of immorality. She's a prostitute. In the same way was not Rahab, the prostitute, justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Abraham was a, an in general moral man. He had some issues, obviously. All of the characters of the Old Testament are, re, are representatives of us. We're, we're, no matter how moral you are, we all have some, we're all screwed up some way, right? 
I don't know. I was trying to say that in a nice way, but we don't really, we're not really nice. Okay? We're all screwed up some way. But Rahab had made a lifestyle out of her immorality. She made a career out of it. But in this moment, in this beautiful story, she risked her life and her family's life. She put it all on the line to take in and harbor the spies because she knew they were from God and because she knew that this God was powerful and that he was God and that he was going to, uh, he knew that their land was going to be overthrown and they were going to come in and take over. They, she knew who God was and she believed in him. She trusted him enough to put her life on the line to bring these spies in and, and to, to protect them <coughs> in that moment. What's so interesting about this is God gives us one person that's a standard, like a, a pretty moral guy, and then he gives us somebody who made a career out of immorality, which tells us it's not about our status of morality that's going to save us. He saves people that are, are, um, look really good on the outside, and he saves people that are a little dirty on the outside. So it wasn't her status of morality that was going to save her. It was her faith in this God that she respected and feared enough to protect the messengers, his messengers, the spies. But in the moment, in this beautiful story, she risked her life. She did all of this. They were committed to God. Rahab, the prostitute, put her actions where her mouth was. And these verses speak deeply about their decisions. Mark 8, 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, Jesus, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. People like to quote this verse whenever their mother-in-law annoys them. This is my cross to bear. No, it's not. Everybody Everybody has standard inconveniences that happen and occur in their lives. People who don't know Jesus have to put up with things they don't want to put up with. That's not your cross. Your cross is literally your execution device because when you pick up Jesus, you're agreeing to die. And you may not die physically. That may not be your assignment, but you will die to yourself. And in a lot of ways, that's more difficult than dying physically because you have to live out a life of constant sacrificial laying down of yourself for the purpose of the gospel. John 12, 25, whoever loses his life, I'm sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So what about you? This beautiful story of the cross, the greatest demonstration of love the world has ever seen. The perfect king dying for those who had committed treason against the kingdom. The very ones that hung him there and spit on him and hit him with the cat of nine tails, ripping his flesh off before they would nail him, gambling for his clothes. They mocked him, swore at him, and treated him worse than an animal. And if you were and I were there, we would have done the same. Because our propensity to go along with the crowd and hate the person who steps into our business and calls us on our crap like Jesus did all the time, our propensity to hate those people and be annoyed with those people is still there. But he hung there and he asked God to forgive them for they know not what they do. That is a love we cannot possess apart from God himself through the power of the Holy Spirit. That is a love without measure. 
It is the love of a father to give his son. It is the love of a savior to become a substitute in our place. It is the love of the spirit who works continually to draw us to this precious and powerful reality even to this day. And my prayer is, is that what, that's what he does in our life right now. If you don't know Christ as Lord, I'm not asking you if you go to church or if your grandma or grandpa raised you in church. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? And when I mean no, let me not mince my words. I don't mean, do you have an intellectual understanding and belief that he exists? I mean, have you laid down your life for him? Denied and said, it's no longer Josh that lives, it's Christ that lives through me to the glory of his name. If that's you, I pray the Holy Spirit will convict you and draw you to the cross and grant you the gift of repentance and give you faith to believe. All of it comes from him, and my prayer is that you would do that today. If you're a Christian, Christians need the gospel just as much as non-Christians need the gospel. We need to hear about the good things God has done for us. We need to be reminded because we have a propensity to continually look to ourselves, idolize ourselves, look to the world for, uh, to, to, for, to self-soothe all of our anxieties and fears. We need to be reminded that hope is not found in the world. Hope is not found in ourselves, but it's found in Christ Jesus alone. And so today, maybe we, some of us need to be reminded that where we have looked internally and looked to ourselves to satisfy our longings and we're falling short or we've looked to sin, today is a great opportunity to lay that at the foot of the cross because this, this journey we're on, there's, there's bumps and there's hurdles and there's challenges. It's not a race that's always ran on a smooth road. Sometimes there are distractions. Sometimes there are things that can trip us up. So every, we have to come back to the gospel and remind ourselves that it is by Christ alone that he enables us to walk out righteousness in our life. Let's pray. Father, we